Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. It is Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, where my Bible is opened. And if you would be finding Jeremiah chapter seven in your Bible, you will find that most helpful. Uh, I really think it's kind of needful to be looking in the Bible about the things that we'll be discussing this evening. We'll be in the Bible a lot for the next few minutes, so let's get them cranked open to Jeremiah, the seventh chapter. Once again, it is a privilege to be in this fine assembly, and I am so encouraged by your presence tonight and by your hearty participation in the things that we are doing tonight as we seek to please the Lord through this hour of worship. Appreciate so much your hearty singing and the good prayer that was offered a moment ago. And I just tell you, the Lord knew what He was doing when He designed His church and the activities that His church was to be involved in. Because these things, what we're doing tonight, what we've been doing today, they serve the dual purpose of not only glorifying Him, but at the very same time, edifying us as well. And I've certainly been edified by the time we've spent together today. In Jeremiah the 7th chapter, God is giving His prophet the message that He wants him to proclaim to His wayward people, the children of Israel. It is a message of doom and it is a message of destruction Yet even as God is giving Jeremiah the words that he wants him to say, I want you to notice what he tells Jeremiah is going to be the result of that preaching. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and in verse 27, God says to him, He says, You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. In 2002... Newsweek magazine ran a story in which it was reported, and I quote, that hell has disappeared from modern religious imagination. The article went on to say that if the modern pulpit is any index, hell is not something that people want to hear about today. Now, if that was true 15 years ago, then I think it's probably pretty safe to say That is still probably true even to this day. That people do not want to hear about hell. As one denominational preacher put it, the average churchgoer just expects positive sermons. And in a day and age where arguably the most popular preacher on the planet, Joel Osteen, is known for preaching exclusively and only lessons that are positive, then it's not hard for us to figure out where exactly people are in what they want out of preaching. It's pretty easy for us to begin to understand what it is that people want to hear. And by that very same token, it's able, we're able to figure out what it is that people don't want to hear. This morning I shared with you the sermon that I do not want to preach. This evening I need to continue on with that very same train of thought by preaching to you the sermon that no one wants to hear. And I realize that in some ways I'm taking a risk today by preaching on such unpleasant subjects as I have. We've had visitors, had lots of visitors this morning, we got lots of visitors again this evening, and I realize I'm running the risk of running you all off and never wanting to come back again. But I don't care. Because I am convinced that even if people are driven away, Even if people stop their ears the way that people did during the days of Jeremiah, even if people refuse to listen to what God's Word has to say, I am convinced that we must keep preaching about hell. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and in verse 2, to be ready in season 
and out of season. That is, you be ready to preach God's Word when people want to hear it, and you be ready to preach it even when they don't want to hear it. And my commitment to you, my commitment to God, is that as a preacher of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, I will preach the whole counsel of God. And yes, that even includes the stuff that we don't like. And so tonight, or these few minutes that we have remaining together, I want to try to punctuate what was started this morning by just standing up here and saying what no one wants to hear, but what I believe everyone needs to hear. And that begins by just laying out that same fundamental truth that I laid out this morning about hell. And that is, first of all, that hell is real. Now I'll tell you, just by me making that little three-word statement, hell is real, that's going to get me into a lot of trouble with the educated and enlightened society in which we live today. There are so many people today who view themselves almost as just kind of being too smart for Jesus, too smart for the Word of God, too smart to believe in a place like hell. In fact, they see people like us as being almost kind of backward, kind of primitive in some ways, because we would believe that a place like hell exists. Come on. Come on, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, if you were part of one of those churches that was like kind of back in the woods, kind of a rickety, ramshackle type of building, and people back then were largely ignorant and uninformed and not as sophisticated as we are today, I guess it'd be okay to believe in hell then. But come on! We're living in 2017. How could any rational, intelligent human being really believe in hell? Sometimes folks, even when they're making those kinds of arguments, they'll even appeal to the Bible to try to argue against hell. People will say things like, you know, Jesus, Jesus is a loving Savior, right? Isn't that what you guys believe? Don't y'all sing songs about that kind of thing? That Jesus was full of grace and full of mercy. Come on. All that stuff that you all are spouting about fire and punishment, that just doesn't match up with the Jesus that I know, the Jesus that I've read in the Bible. I'll tell you what's really interesting about all of that is that if someone has a, co- a problem with the concept of hell, the problem's not with us. The problem that they have is with Jesus because He is the guy who kept talking about hell. Of all the people in the Bible who wrote and said things about hell, Jesus said more about hell than anybody. Let's get a few of those places. Look in Matthew chapter 23. Let's just run a little bit here in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 23, this is in the middle of that lengthy rebuke of the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, look at what Jesus says in verse 15. In Matthew 23 and in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus says, yeah, you all go around and you convert all these people to your cause. You get them to buy into your hypocrisy. And what happens is, is you end up condemning them just like you condemn yourself. And where do you condemn them to? Jesus says, you are condemning them to hell. Drop down in that very same chapter. Look in verse 33. In verse 33, Jesus continues to say to them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Twice in that same sermon, Jesus warns about hell. Look in Mark chapter 9 with me. Let's just plunge forward in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 9, I read these verses this morning. 
Which is why tonight, I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but I'm not reading from the ESV as I normally do. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible to maybe kind of give a little bit different flavor to some of the verses that we already read this morning. In Mark chapter 9, I'm reading here in verse 43. In Mark 9 verse 43, Jesus said, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In fact, Jesus would go on to say in the next several verses, verses 45, 46, 47, and 48, continuing to talk about pounding away at the reality of hell. Now jump forward to the Gospel of Luke. Look in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, look at what Jesus says to His disciples here. There are this giant multitude of people, but Jesus wants to say some things specifically to His disciples here at the beginning. In Luke chapter 12 and in verse 4, Jesus says, Luke 12, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Capital H, fear him. You know, whenever our culture comes and confronts us and they ask the question, how can you believe in the existence of hell? Why why would you believe in such a thing? You know what our answer is? Our answer to that every time is because Jesus said so. End of discussion. If you're going to believe in Jesus, if you're going to believe anything that Jesus taught, then you must believe that hell is real because Jesus taught it over and over and over again. It's kind of a package deal. But let me take that a step further. It's not enough just to get up and to say that hell is real. That bothers some folks, but that's not the worst of it. What no one really wants to hear about hell is that hell is awful. And once again, we come to that conclusion based on the very vivid and frightening pictures of hell that are painted for us in Scripture. This is not a doctrine that we just kind of made up. Us and the Church of Christ just made this up. And certainly the idea of hell is not something that the Catholic Church dreamed up centuries ago to try to you know kind of keep people in line. No. We conclude that hell is awful because Scripture says so. You just stop and think about all of the descriptions of hell that are given for us in the Bible. First of all, hell is described as a place of fire. Matthew 13, verse 42. That passage speaks about it being a furnace of fire. The passage that we just read there in Mark chapter 9 and in verse 44 talks there about the unquenchable fire. That terminology is used again and again and again. Or what about how Jesus described hell as a place of outer Darkness, Matthew 25, verse 30. Furthermore, that it will be a place of really just almost unimaginable suffering. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 and in verse 9, that in that place there will be tribulation and anguish for those who go there. Jesus as well said in Luke chapter 13 and in verse 28, that in hell there will be that weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, this idea, and it's a very popular idea, that hell is really just, it's an annihilation. It's an annihilation of, of, of the soul. That we are just completely destroyed. We cease to exist. We're just dead all over like Rover. You know, that may be a very comforting thought to some people. But they didn't get it from the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. 
The Bible teaches that hell is an awful place of torment and suffering. And you want to know why the Bible goes to such great lengths? And we just look at the, the kind of the tip of the iceberg here. You want to know why the Bible goes to such lengths to describe the awfulness of hell? Remember that verse we read a moment ago in Luke chapter 12 and in verse 5? Talking about who to fear? The Bible tells us about hell so that we will fear. It ought to terrify us. It ought to cause every single person in this room right now to tremble at the very thought of being consigned, being condemned to hell for all of eternity. And I will tell you that that fear of punishment, that can actually be a very useful thing. That can actually serve as a remarkable prod to get us to do what we ought to do. It can serve as a remarkable prod for us to be obedient, to to live godly for the Lord. Somebody maybe would say, well, hold on now, Josh, you know, Shouldn't we be motivated to serve the Lord by by higher purposes than just being afraid? You know, shouldn't we obey God because we love God? After all, Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And you know what I'd say to that? I'd say to that, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. I would hope that everybody in this audience would choose or at least get to the place where they are serving the Lord and doing what they what the Lord says because you love Him. That's a great reason. That's probably the greatest reason. But you know what? There's another reason to serve the Lord. And that's because the fear of punishment. The fear of the awfulness and the dreadedness of hell. And I've thought about this. It's kind of like this with our kids, isn't it? Those of you that are parents understand this. As a parent, I want my child to do what daddy says... Because she loves me. That'd be the greatest thing. She obeys me because she loves me. But you know what? There are other times that Hattie's going to do what I say because she fears that she will be punished if she doesn't do it. That fear of punishment then motivates her to do what her father has instructed. And what I'm saying to you this evening is that this doesn't have to be an either-or situation. Love and fear, those are both appropriate motivations to serve God. And how do I know that? I know that because Jesus tells us, I want to obey the Lord. I want to obey Him because of the love and the gratitude that I have built up in my heart. And I want to express that to Him and show that to Him through my heartfelt, genuine obedience. But I stand before you and will confess to you that sometimes, sometimes obeying the Lord is hard. There are things the Lord asks of Christians to do that are difficult, and I'm going to tell you that it is the fear of hell, the dreadedness, the awfulness of hell, that it is what keeps me on the straight and narrow. I want to do what God says because I love Him, but you know what? Sometimes what I need is I need to be provoked by the thought of the awfulness of hell. We don't want to hear about hell. But the more that we do, the more we are driven to stay out of that awful place. Let me tell you thirdly this evening, That really what makes preaching on hell so offensive, I think, in many people's minds, is the fact that hell is eternal. And I realize that probably could have just been included right in that second point. But really, of all of the things that makes hell awful, wouldn't that be the worst? Wouldn't that be the worst thing of all? Talked about fire. Talked about darkness. Talked about suffering. But how long do all of those things last? Eternal fire. Eternal darkness. Eternal suffering. 
And once again, it is Jesus who taught that the most plainly. In Matthew the 25th chapter, please. In Matthew chapter 25, we're given a preview of the judgment scene. And Jesus describes how this whole thing's going to play out. In Matthew chapter 25, He describes the dividing of the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, and how they will then be called before the Lord, and they will each, each of those groups, they're going to receive the judgment that the Lord has for them. And what Jesus tells us here is about the judgment of the wicked. In Matthew chapter 25, I'm looking in verse 41. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus says, Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Drop down to verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Out of everything that the Bible has to say about hell, I really do think that this is the one that people find most objectionable. Eternal? Eternal? I think that really bothers people. I think if the Bible had maybe said something different, if the Bible had said, listen, if you don't behave yourself in this life, when God comes, you're going to go to this terrible place this awful place of suffering, and you're going to have to stay there for one whole year, what would most people say? I think most people would say, and that's what you deserve. You do. You did bad. You should. You should be punished for a whole year. In fact, I think if the Bible were to say, you know what? If you disobey God, and you reject Him in this life, when God comes back in judgment, you're going to go to this terrible place of suffering, and you're going to suffer there for a hundred years. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, yep, that, 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 that's right. That would that, that, be fair. You know, you'd serve and you'd be punished for a hundred years. That, that, that seems like a fair sentence. I think if you maybe up the ante and even if you said a thousand years, I think you'd still have some folks who'd say, yep, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what you deserve for doing the bad stuff that you did. But it is the fact that hell does not last for just one year or ten years, or a hundred years, or a thousand years, but that it goes on forever? I think that's what really makes people upset. Because that's when people will start to argue and they'll say things like, that's not fair. That's just that the math does not compute there. I mean, come on, we're only here on this earth for what? What's the average lifespan? Like 70, 80 years old? Maybe if you have really, really good health and you're really, really lucky, maybe you live to be like you know, 90 years old or a hundred. And you know what? Even if you're a really, really bad person for that whole time, let's say 90 years of wickedness, that just doesn't seem fair to then be punished for all eternity. It's really interesting to me, though, that nobody ever makes that same argument when they're talking about heaven. You know, 90 whole years of good behavior and we get to go to heaven for all of eternity. Well, you know what? That doesn't seem fair either. That's not fair at all. But you know what? There's really kind of just an inherent flaw in that whole line of thinking and reasoning. And that's this. The penalty for a crime, and this is true even like in the United States judicial system, the penalty for a crime is never based on how long it takes to commit that crime. Think about this. How long does it take to commit murder? You know, if somebody comes into this church building with an automatic weapon, They can commit a lot of murder in just like a few seconds. Let me ask you, 
Does that mean that they should only spend a few seconds in jail? Of course not. We'd be quick to say, send them away. Send them for life. Send them away forever if you can. They did bad. They need to be punished extremely. You see, crime is not judged based on the length of time that it took to commit the crime. Crime is judged based on its heinousness. How terrible it is. And when we contemplate the crimes we have committed against God, they are extremely heinous. They are terrible in His sight. And I think that's where a lot of times we just, we just, people aren't thinking. I think that's really part of the problem. We've bought into the devil's delusion that sin really isn't that big of a deal. But you know what? I know that it's a big deal. You want to know how I know? I know that because Jesus came to this earth to remedy the problem of sin. The truth of the matter is, any kind of arguing that people might do about the fairness of eternal punishment, it's really just kind of pointless at the end of the day. Because it really doesn't matter whether you think that's fair or not. It really doesn't matter whether that's logical to you. It really doesn't matter whether that makes sense to you. What matters most is what the Bible says. And in Matthew 25, there in verse 46, Jesus says that hell is eternal just like heaven is eternal. And if I believe that heaven is forever, and I do, I believe that when I go to be with the Lord in heaven, I'm going to be there forever. There's no turning back. It'll be me and the Lord for all time. If I believe that, then I am also logically bound to believe that the horrors of hell are also forever. It's a package deal. Hell is real. Hell is awful. Hell is eternal. But let me set before you something. Let me set these last two are going to be the really painful ones. Let me tell you the thing that people really don't want to hear about hell. And that is this. I can go there. And so can you. You know, most people, most people do not think that is going to happen to them. I think if you stop Ten people on the street and ask them if they're going to hell. At least nine of them are going to say, nope, I ain't going to hell. Most people would fervently argue against the likelihood that they could ever go to such a place. People would say, oh, that's just, for me? No, me, no, that's just not even within the realm of comprehension. It's not even possible. In many people's minds, how they picture hell is that it's just kind of this big super max prison. It's kind of, you know, the Alcatraz, but, you know, down there somewhere and there's fire all around it. And it's this big terrible place that God has set up for the extremely, abundantly, super wicked people. You know the kind of people I'm talking about? The Adolf Hitlers, the Saddam Husseins the Osama Bin Ladens, the Charles Mansons. And I think most people, if you were to ask them, most people would say, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with God sending those people to hell. Yeah, absolutely, those people should go to hell. And so if hell is just for those kind of people, if it's just for the, the uber, super duper wicked, the murderers, the terrorists, the rapists, the evil dictators of world history, then you know what? <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm doing pretty, compared to those guys, I'm doing pretty good. Because I don't go around killing people. I don't go around plotting world terrorist acts. I pay my taxes. I'm nice to other people. I don't purposely go running over puppy dogs. I'm a pretty decent guy. I'm definitely in safe territory. 
And you know what? If hell really were just for only the baddest of the bad, then yeah, I can see how we might think that. But once again, that's not what the Bible teaches. Who is it that's going to be in hell? Other than the obvious, other than the obvious, you know, the really wicked, wicked, unrepentant people of this world, who else is going to be in hell? Well, the Bible tells us. Look at 2 Thessalonians, please. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you're sitting here this evening, and you're not a Christian, if you're not living faithfully as a Christian, and you've been convincing yourself that, you know what, I'm not some terrible, evil, wicked person going out doing terribly scandalous stuff, I'll be okay, then you just see how these particular passages float your boat. In 2 Thessalonians 1, who is it that's going to go to hell? 2 Thessalonians 1 and in verse 7, there Paul writes, he says, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, notice this, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. According to verses 8 and 9, who is it that's going to hell? It's people who don't know God. It's people who don't have relationship with God. People who do not obey the Gospel. What's that do for you? If you're not a Christian this evening, Do you still feel as comfortable as maybe you did before I started talking a few minutes ago? Do you still feel comfortable about your situation after reading that passage? The Bible does not stop there. Look in Matthew chapter 7, please. In Matthew chapter 7, you see, it's not just the super wicked who are going to hell. It's not even just the people who don't obey the gospel who are going to hell. In Matthew chapter 7, look in verse 21. In Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 21, there Jesus says... Matthew 7, I'm in Mark. I was wondering, that boy, that didn't look like the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 21, there Jesus says, Matthew 7 and verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Who are these people? Well, these are obviously religious people. These are the kinds of people who go to church on Sunday. They're dedicated. They are involved in the particular religious group that they are affiliated with. What does Jesus say to these people? Verse 23, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Whoa, these are religious people. Why is Jesus telling these people to depart? Going to hell. He tells them, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Yes, these are people who did a lot of religious stuff. They even did a lot of religious stuff in the name of the Lord. But it was not according to the law of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice here that Jesus did not say to those people, well, you know, even though you didn't really do what I asked you to do concerning things like worship or the work of the church or how it is that a person goes about being saved, you know, you all just come on in anyway. You're pretty good otherwise. No. 
Jesus teaches that there will even be religious people in hell. Who else is going to be in hell? Would you find Matthew 25 again? In Matthew 25, we read a couple of verses that kind of bookend the section that I want to read right now. In Matthew 25, I'll be honest with you, this is the one that makes me personally very uncomfortable. In Matthew 25, look in verse 41. This is the very reason that I put on the screen the fact that I can go there. I can. In Matthew 25, here's why. Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones, to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry. You gave Me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave Me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite Me in. Naked and you didn't clothe Me. Sick and in prison and you didn't visit Me. Now, maybe at this point, you're probably thinking what I thought before. Well, Jesus... How am I going to be able to do those things for you? I lived 2,000 years after the time that you were on this earth. And in fact, Jesus knew that there would be people who would say that. Look in verse 44. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Hey, come on. We've got an out here. We weren't able to do those things for you personally. Jesus' response, verse 45. Then He will answer them. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Who's Jesus talking about in those verses? Jesus is talking here about people, maybe even people who would call themselves disciples, Christians. These are people who do not serve Him by serving Others. And that shakes me to my core. And I think at this point, when you put together all of those various passages, we've potentially covered pretty much everybody, if not in this room, maybe even in the whole world here. The idea that any of us could go to hell. And maybe what you're thinking is, is you're thinking as you're kind of adding up all of those different categories of people that the Lord said is going to hell, you might be thinking, boy, that, that seems like there's a lot of people who are going to hell. You're exactly right. There are going to be a lot of people who go to hell. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14? Jesus said, many are on the broad way that leads to destruction. And how many is on that narrow way? Just a few. From an evangelistic standpoint, I'll tell you, this is the main reason why we need to keep preaching about hell. And that is because of the fact that most people are going to go there. And I'm telling you, we do them no favors at all by just remaining quiet about that. This looming spiritual disaster and catastrophe. When I say nothing, I'm not helping anybody. We do not help anyone. By telling them that hell, well, hell is only reserved for the baddest of the bad. Hell is reserved for someone other than yourself. And that it's really not a danger for you. You know, just because you choose to ignore the danger, that doesn't mean that there's not danger. The danger is present. Hell is real. Hell is awful. Hell is eternal. You can go there. I can go there. And here's maybe the most painful thing of all about hell. If I go, I'm stuck with my choice. 
Now, if you were here this morning, you might be feeling a little sense of deja vu with this last point, and that is intentional. Because it really just bears repeating. That I decide, I choose whether I'm going to be on the narrow way or whether I'm going to be on the broad way. I make the choice. You make the choice of where it is that you are going to go. In fact, if you are sitting in the audience this evening and you are of an accountable age, you've already decided. Have you ever thought about that? You have. You've already made your decision. There's no such thing as a, as a non-decision. Lots of people want to trick themselves about that kind of thing. Well, I'm just still kind of on the fence. Let me remind you, the devil owns the fence. There's no such thing as a non-decision. You're either with the Lord or you're not with the Lord. And by the very way that you live, by the choices that you make every single day of your life, you have already decided. And when the end comes, whether that be by death, as we talked about this morning, or whether that be by the coming of Jesus in the cloud, you will, when that moment comes, you will be stuck with your decision. You're not stuck with it right now because you still have time and opportunity. But when the end comes, you're stuck. There'll be no do-overs. There'll be no hitting of the reset button. There'll be no second chances. You are stuck with that choice and you are stuck with the consequences of that choice forever. You know, we referenced that passage a little bit earlier about that in hell that there will be the weeping, and the gnashing of teeth. I do think that that does represent the maybe the, the, the pain that we will feel in hell. Certainly we won't be physical beings in hell. We'll be some kind of a spirit being in hell. But the pain that will come upon us there. But i got to tell you, I really don't think that that's all that that's talking about. I think that, that this is me personally, I think that that weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think that represents the flood of regret that flows over a person's soul when they are suddenly awakened to the reality that they have just blown it. They've blown it eternally. Are you familiar at all with that structure? That is the Sistine Chapel, and that is the famous painting of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. That was done by Michelangelo back in the 1500s. Amazing piece of architecture, at least from what I've seen in pictures. I've not seen it in person. Lots of work has been done to restore that in recent years. Uh, the, kind of the centerpiece of all of that, there's all of these various frescoes, these little panels that have different depictions of things in the Bible and, uh, and various things about God and about His nature. Probably the centerpiece, though, is this one right here. It's referred to as the Last Judgment. And that always gets lots of attention. And you see there, you kind of piece things together there. It is the idea of what will happen at judgment. The idea of angels coming and retrieving souls to take them back to God, to be in heaven. And then also there's even kind of the struggle there. Fighting with folks who are trying to resist and get away from the angels as they're trying to take them down to hell where they'll be for all eternity. There's lots going on there, and I've read different things about people kind of you know making things of each of the different characters in that particular painting. But I'm going to show you the one that has always caught my eye. And it is this guy right here. You ever noticed that guy before? You see the look on his face? While all this struggle is happening around him, 
What does his face, what does his expression, what does his countenance say to you? His expression says to me, I blew it. I blew it. I had my opportunity and I royally blew it. And I wonder, I wonder how many souls are in torment right now, this very minute, who are awaiting the day of judgment and they are weeping and gnashing the teeth of regret. Weeping and gnashing the teeth of remorse because they realize, they realize that there is no one to blame but themselves. I wonder, what would they want to say to us? If they could have the opportunity to come back to earth and be here in front of this assembly tonight, what do you think they would want to say to us? The truth is, we don't have to speculate about that. The Bible tells us. One final passage in Luke 16. In Luke 16, I read this story in its entirety this morning. It is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We're not going to read all of it again tonight. I want to notice in particular what the rich man says in verse 27. As he is there in agony, in torment, he's in this flame. And as he cries out to Abraham, begging and pleading for some kind of just a small amount of mercy to be extended to him. In Luke chapter 16, I'm reading here in verse 27, there the rich man said, I beg you, Father, Father Abraham, that you send him, send him, Lazarus, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Do you know what people in torment are saying right now? And if they had the chance to come up here and say it to you, you know what they're saying? They're saying, you got to keep preaching about hell. you got to keep telling people about this place. Go tell my family. Go tell my friends. Tell everyone you come in contact with, I don't want them to come here. That is what they are saying to you and I even tonight. Don't come to this place. You do everything that you can to stay out of hell. Go to heaven. You have the choice. You have the opportunity to go and be with God for all of eternity. Talked about a lot of bad and bleak news today, but that's the good news in all of this. You have the option of going to heaven, being with God forever. I realize... I realize that one sermon about hell, well, if you count this morning, a couple of sermons about hell, one Sunday talking about hell, that's not necessarily going to make a difference for everybody in the whole world. And I also realize that no matter how much teaching and preaching and screaming and yelling and warning that I do and we all do about hell, there's going to be some people that just aren't going to change. It's not that they can't change. There's just some people that they won't change. But I'm going to tell you, whether folks change or whether they don't, whether somebody comes forward during the invitation song tonight or whether nobody does, doesn't have any bearing at all on my obligation and your obligation to keep on teaching and preaching and speaking about the reality of hell, about the horrors of hell, about the eternal nature of hell, about the fact that you can go to hell and about the dreaded fact and realization 
that if you go there, it's your own fault. And you are stuck with that decision forever. I tell you, I concluded with that story of the rich man and Lazarus. I would sure hope there's not a single person here who wants the end of their story to be the end like the rich man's. And that is why we extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ. Extended it this morning. There wasn't anybody that responded this morning. But I hope that doesn't mean that there weren't people who weren't thinking about that. Maybe you needed that little bit of extra time this afternoon to let some of that digest. Where are you at now? We're all gathered together here. We're in a room full of people who I can tell you the desire of most everybody here is we want all the people in this room to go to heaven. We want everybody to go to heaven, but we especially want the people in this room right now to go to heaven. Can we help you tonight to be ready for that? We're going to sing this song in just a moment. Oh, why not tonight? Why not? Why not tonight? If you have any appreciation at all for the things that I've said today, and I'll be honest with you, I don't really know much else that I can say. You've already decided. What will you do with this invitation now? Will you accept it? Or will you reject it for one more day? I hope you'll accept it. Do that right now by making your way to the front while we stand and while we sing.